to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Do you like listening to our show? We aim to inspire, teach, and sometimes entertain. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, could you please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review? It's quick and easy to do. You could just leave a rating or add some comments, whatever you'd like. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would make it easier for other listeners to find the show, spreading the word about pro bono and access to justice. Thanks so much for your help. And if you prefer a different platform, the show is also available now on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Leave a review wherever you are listening. Today we're talking to Osvaldo Garcia from Codwallader, Wickersham, and Taft. Osvaldo is based in New York City, where he is a member of the firm's private client group. He also maintains an active pro bono practice, and we discussed how he combines the two. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Oswaldo, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Let's jump right in. For starters, could you tell us about you? Share a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, your family, where you went to school, things like that. Okay, well, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. Um, so I'm an attorney um, right now. I've been an attorney for the last five years. It's going to be five years, I think, in September, although Sometimes it feels like dog years. It feels much longer than that. Um, but I, uh, I'm originally from Cuba. I was born in Cuba, and uh, I lived there until I was 10. Um, at the age of 10, uh, me and my uh, mother and brother, um, we were able to defect outside of the country. Um, so, you know, we took a circuitous route to the United States. Um, eventually, when we arrived in Miami, uh, my mother sought a political asylum, and so we uh, had a process of you know, kind of relocation and being uh, adjusted to the United States, and um, eventually we were able to become you know, citizens of the United States. So I was based in Miami for most of my teenage years. That's still where my family is. Um, so Miami's kind of a second home now. I think, you know, I finally feel comfortable calling New York my first home. And uh, I went to undergrad in uh, Miami, uh, Florida International University. And uh, I actually went there for international relations. So my thought was always that I would become, you know, some sort of embassy worker. Um, but eventually that didn't work out as planned. So I decided to shift gears and I didn't want to take a year off, so I decided, you know, I, I can always take the LSAT, um, and uh, I did, and I did well on it, so, you know, that decided to become a lawyer, so I ended up actually going to Cornell Law, and so I did my three years of law school there, and uh, eventually found my way to Cadwallader, where I have been practicing since. That's amazing. So, okay, tell me a little bit about the transition from Miami to Ithaca. Weather, at least, that is extreme. (laughs) It it was uh, definitely an adjustment. Uh, What nobody told me is that Ithaca was about as bad as it would get. So by the time I got to New York, I felt like I had it easy. Um, But it it was definitely an adjustment. And uh, certainly what they call the spring semester over there at Cornell, it's certainly not the spring semester because if it's still snowing by the time that you're taking your spring exams, then it's certainly not what you would call spring. Um, so it was rough. It was uh, very cold, a lot of, you know, walking through the snow. I feel like now I can tell my kids, I, you know, when I was your age, I could walk through the snow. And 
um, you know, give all those war stories. But um, it was it was at the end of the day, it was a really good experience. Uh, I decided at the last semester that I wasn't going to go to another spring semester. And so I ended up just doing a semester abroad in Lisbon. And uh, that was a really great experience. Um, so I kind of still feel like my last semester, I didn't go to law school. Um, but um, I definitely got to learn a lot. I got to see the law from a different perspective, particularly now with my practice and some much more internationally uh, focused, you know, it has really given me a lot of tools, you know, to be able to, you know, do the type of work that I am doing. So that was a really good experience. But no, certainly in terms of weather, it was uh, an adaptation, <laughs> to say the least. Well, weather aside, Cornell is a great school. It actually has a beautiful building. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they actually expanded it recently. So now we have, you know, uh, many more classrooms. And I didn't get to see the the fruits of that expansion because by the time that it was open, I was already I was going to Lisbon actually. So um, it's you know I go back there every you know once in a while, every few years uh, to do some recruiting and. Uh, I'm always amazed at it, you know how good of a job they've done with the campus. So I, I really have no complaints at all whatsoever. Plus a beautiful library. But then again, you know most of these universities have beautiful libraries, so it just kind of feels redundant. Tell us a little more before we move on about um, spending the semester in Lisbon. I know you know there's so many debates about the third year of law school and how to make it you know sort of useful and vibrant. And is law school too long anyway? And how do we get people practice ready? Or how do we give them interesting and meaningful experiences? So it sounds like a semester abroad is definitely an interesting and meaningful experience. Yeah, I, I have uh, I have thoughts about the third year of law school. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I thought that it, it all depends on what you're looking for. I, I found that it worked for me because I really got to develop a network of international colleagues. And that really allowed me to convert it into, you know, kind of a, a web of people that I could tap into, you know, depending upon which country I was dealing with. Um, so, for example, one of the first tasks that I was given was to, you know, deal with a passport issue for one of our clients. And, um, you know, I was in a Portuguese, a former Portuguese colony. And so I was able to, you know, use my resources, you know, my friends, you know, in order to get in contact with one of the law firms in that country. So, um, you know, it really allowed me to obtain some resources that I wouldn't otherwise have and also just make some fantastic friends in the process. Um, and particularly, you know, the matters of the EU, I got to learn a little bit more about how the EU works. And I think now more than ever, you kind of just need to have, you know, a broader perspective. I think that U.S. practitioners, for the most part, tend to be very insular, you know, and that's just kind of something general as a whole in the United States that, you know, if it's happening outside of the U.S., you don't really care about that. But I think nowadays it's becoming more imperative that we know what's happening outside of the United States and we know how, you know, the systems of governance function in other countries. So um, I think with respect to that, I thought that it was very helpful. Of course, I mean, you know, you could take out of it as much as you want. You know, you could treat it as, uh, you know, as a you know, time to just unwind a little bit. And certainly the caseload in a foreign country, at least in my experience with Lisbon, was not as bad as it was here in Cornell and, you know, law school here. It's, I actually had some friends that eventually ended up going to Cornell for a semester abroad, and 
and they were just shocked at the amount of work they had to do. Um, it's, it's just a different kind of mentality and a different kind of pedagogical approach to learning, um, whereas here it's much more focused on, um, you know, reading the cases, outlining, making sure that you're very prepared. Over there is more as, you know, go to the class, you know, hear your lecture, and then write a paper about it, um, which is definitely different. Um, not necessarily one is better than the other, but it's certainly a, a different uh, teaching process. So you mentioned that um, you went to law school and you ended up at a law firm. Tell us how you got to Cadwallader. Um, you know, it's a fairly vanilla story. It's, you know, you do OCI uh, on-campus interviews uh, your first summer. Um, so the first summer after you've gone through the ringer and passed the gauntlet of your first year, um, then you're greeted with, you know, now you have to interview and, you know, and try to convince people that, you know, that you're worth it. And, uh, you know, essentially I interviewed with Cadwallader and funnily enough, the interviewer at the time, we actually kind of bonded over Lord of the Rings. So that's a, <laughs> a funny little story. And so, you know, eventually, you know, we developed a good rapport. And so I got a call back. Um, so it was actually the first, um, first law firm that I interviewed with. And, you know, they gave me an offer to go back, uh, you know, as a summer associate. And it was either, you know, here at Cadwallader or somewhere in Miami to another law firm in Miami. And so it really came down to where do I want to live? And so ultimately I chose uh, being here in New York. And, you know, at first I kind of regretted that a little bit because I, you know, found it a little bit hard to get accustomed to New York. Um, before this, I had not been in New York for more than three days. Um, so, you know, to go from that to just, okay, I'm going to move here, um, was a big change, but, you know, eventually I warmed up to the city and, uh, and so I started out as a litigation associate. I went through the summer associate program, um, got an offer to return. I was pretty much known as a litigation guy. So, you know, the litigation team took me in and, uh, I ended up going to the litigation department and, uh, I worked there for about a year and three months. And then I transitioned to the trust and estates group. So that's currently where I find myself. Uh, I'm a trust and estates attorney, um, dealing more on the international field because of my language, my background, et cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Now, tell me about that transition. What attracted you to the trust and estates work? Um, so, you know, first of all, I love litigation. I, I think litigation is, at the end of the day, one of my greatest passions and one of the big reasons why I ended up going to law school. Um, I kind of like the challenge and the gamesmanship of, you know, being on one side and arguing for that side, etc. I think that appeals to a lot of lawyers. Um, I think the problem was that the type of litigation that I was doing was not necessarily the type of litigation that I wanted to do. And uh, during that time, I got to meet some of the principals in the trust and estates group. And so I got to work with them on a few matters, just interpreting and trying to help with, you know, the Spanish, et cetera. And so I really liked, you know, the, you know, the, the, the fact that I could speak to actual people, that I could actually speak to actual clients. You know, being in a big law firm, a lot of the times you're dealing with, um, you know, the legal departments of a large institution, et cetera. So, you know, it was very personable for me to be able to have a direct line to the client and be able to talk with the client. So it was a feeling of, you know, being able to help our clients, you know, and being challenged on an everyday basis and dealing with whatever problems the client, you know, may have at a particular point in time. 
And uh, at the end of the day, I like the idea of being able to put on a lot of different hats every day. And, you know, some days I'm doing some more litigation-oriented work. Other days I'm doing just traditional trust and estate work. Other days I'm doing some corporate-oriented work. So it really allows me to see the full spectrum of, you know, different fields of law. And honestly, here at the firm, I've worked with every single group at this point. I, I, I get to really dip my toes into every single practice. It's not just the same, you know, thing over and over again. So um, I think that really called out to me. And plus the fact that from a very early stage, you know, all the principals treated me, you know, as a full-blown attorney. And yes, I was learning, but they treated me with the sort of respect, you know, that, you know, comes with, you know, being an attorney and having gone to law school, et cetera. So I felt like my opinion was uh, valuable and it was actually desired. Um, so not necessarily that that's not the case in other groups, but, um, you know, I felt it much more here um, in the trust and estates group. I was a litigator in my past life, and I think your experience really resonates with me. And I think the idea of... Um, focusing time on serving individuals as clients rather than sort of corporate entities, I think also speaks to pro bono, where a lot of people love to do pro bono work because it's a time where you get to help individuals, right? Which which people may not get as part of their, their billing practice, um, which is a good transition because you maintain an active and actually award-winning pro bono caseload. What sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? Well, I'm, like I said, I, I am an immigrant. I came here when I was 10 and you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in an immigrant environment and I can see how so many people are kind of floundering without access to legal services. And so it's always been, to me, I see it as almost a responsibility or a duty that I have, you know, to the community. And I actually tell this to other attorneys, you know, every time I have to do a pitch, I'm, I'm much more of a forceful type of person, you know, because I think that you know, we do have an obligation to our community to, you know, provide and give back. It's not just about, um, you know, the billable client and the client that can pay your fees. Um, you know, you should have a certain amount of hours dedicated to just giving back. And I think, you know, as an immigrant, I feel like, you know, that's what really makes me gravitate towards the kind of work that I do in pro bono, which is helping undocumented immigrants. Um, which is that I, I do feel like, you know, I got a, a very favorable reception here in this country simply because of my status as a Cuban, you know, and for whatever political reasons, historical reasons, um, I had, you know, a special privilege of staying here and being able to become a citizen um, through the Cuban Adjustment Act. But honestly, I certainly felt like my claim wasn't any greater than, for example, someone that comes from Salvador and is escaping violence, someone that comes from Guatemala and is escaping, you know, domestic abuse. I felt like, you know, if I had that opportunity, it should be my responsibility as well to provide that access to other people. And, you know, particularly our immigration system, it's, you know, to put it mildly, a mess. And it's just kind of a patchwork of different forms of relief without any kind of overarching method to it all. And so, you know, for someone that, you know, at times may even, you know, not be able to read, you know, to be able to go through that process without legal assistance, it's almost as if you're set up to fail. 
So, you know, to be able to be in a position to help those individuals, you know, really means a lot to me. And I try to tell attorneys that, you know, it's not just something that you do because you feel like you should do it. It's something that I think is an obligation. So, you know, I know that that's a very kind of forceful perspective on my part, but I really do feel that way. I feel that we as attorneys have that obligation. Um, let's pick up on that. What do you say other than it's our duty, it's our obligation? What else is part of your pitch to busy law firm lawyers who don't think they have the time to get involved in pro bono? Oh, I have uh, <laughs> I have a few arrows in my quiver that I that I use. Um, I think the main one is, as I think you alluded to it before, is that you really are going to get a level of experience that you know maybe you wouldn't otherwise get at an early stage in your career um, at a big law firm, um, and it really allows you to take ownership of the case. It really allows you to take ownership of developing the facts, getting to know the client. And I think a lot of the skills that you acquire, um, they do uh, translate into a lot of the billable work that you do. So I think that's probably one of the, the biggest ones that I try to tell clients, tell attorneys that, you know, they should really take advantage of that. Um, but beyond that, you know, I try to let them know that, you know, just by you dedicating a bit of time, you know, and Yes, some of the cases may be a little bit more time intensive than others, but let's just say that it's just, you know, one to two hours, you know, at the end of your workday or even, you know, taking up a little bit of work on a Saturday or a Sunday, depending upon, you know, how you know best you feel, you really can change the life of someone um, and you really can just divert the path that they would otherwise have taken into something much more positive and give them opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise receive. And it's not just that person that you're changing their lives, you're also changing the lives of, you know, all the, you know, successive generations that come after. So their kids, their grandkids, etc. You're allowing them to really become, you know, a member of the society. And so, you know, the moment that you actually get to see them, you know, your client who you have developed a bond with and a relationship with, the moment you get to see them finally succeed, and they know that they can breathe, that they are finally free, you know, I think that there are very few feelings that compare to that. I think it's, as an attorney, you know, it gives you a, a sense of gratification. And, you know, the other aspect that I talk about is a lot of the times attorneys, um, you know, they're worried that, you know, they have someone's life on their hands and, you know, do I have enough experience? Do I have what it takes? particularly transactional attorneys tend to be very shy, you know, in that respect, you know, and they ask me, do I need to go to court, et cetera. You know, what I tell them is, look, you basically have an option of, you know, cases that you can take on, and none of them are less important than the other. Um, so if you don't want to go to court, we have certain types of cases that you can work on with respect to that. Or let's say that you do want this particular type of case, you know, we can put you, you know, in a team with someone that does want to go to court, et cetera. And um, you can basically take on as much or as little as you want, essentially. So we try to make it very modular so that they don't feel like they need to take on something that's beyond their capabilities. Um, and beyond that, just give them the proper training and kind of demystify the process. You know, tell them that, you know, these are the steps you need to take. You know, go to training sessions. You know, these are the templates that you can use so that it's very much plug and play. And, you know, of course, there's always going to be, there are always going to be things that, you know, are unforeseen and that may come up. And, and those matters, you know, we just kind of deal with them as they come up. 
but more than anything, you know, I, I try to make it, you know, so that they don't feel like they're going to be overwhelmed and without a lifeline. Um, so those are a few of the things that I do. Um, and of course, it's always hard. Um, you know, so a lot of times I just have to personally appeal to them and say, look, you know, there's this case and I send them the case and, you know, it's harrowing. The facts are terrible. And I say, we need someone. And if we don't have someone, then, you know, this person may not be able to get the you know assistance they need. So, you know, that usually tends to be what works the most. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to reduce their billable caseload. I, I can't do anything with respect to that. So more than anything, I just have to appeal to them, you know, that this is something very positive for them. So um, I, I have had to develop that over time because, you know, everyone that works in pro bono knows that the most difficult part is getting attorneys to divest their time to work on it. Um, so it's always an ongoing process and one that we're always kind of revisiting. Well. I think you've got a lot of, as you said, tools in your tool belt, and you've combined both the inspiration side with the anticipating people's challenges and how you overcome them. So I've heard oh, that excuse, you. and here's how we overcome it. So <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about the Cudwallader Black and Latino Association Immigration Clinic. So first, before we talk about the clinic, what is the Black and Latino Association? So the CBLA, because I know that otherwise it's a little bit of a mouthful, yep. the CBLA is our affinity network um, for black and Latino attorneys. And, you know, diversity is something that law firms have been struggling with for a long time. And, you know, in that vein, you know, firms like Carwalader have developed this affinity networks that aim to um, not only increase the amount of diverse attorneys, but also provide them with a space to voice their concerns, to create events, to create activities, to get to know the other minorities in the firm. And so, you know, since I was a summer associate, I was very involved in the CBLA. And, you know, through there is, you know, the way that I was able to work on the immigration clinic. So, you know, attorneys come and go. Uh, so it's always good to have an affinity network that you know is always reliable and that you can always get to know people there that, you know, are going to be willing and interested in, you know, helping out or vice versa. You know, you could get to a point, you know, where you're helping others out that are just starting out their career. So that's basically the, the, the modus operandi of, of the CBLA. And um, I find that it's critical that firms have these types of affinity networks. And uh, I think it's been a, a great source of assistance for myself and my career. So I'm definitely glad that I was able to be part of it. A number of firms have created affinity networks for a variety of affinity groups. And one of the things that I think makes Cudwallader stand out is having a pro bono clinic that is run and operated by various uh, affinity networks. And it's such a great idea and such a great program that we did a case study about it at our annual conference in March. So tell us a little bit about the immigration clinic. So the immigration clinic, um, you know, it's just for long as the CBLA immigration clinic, um, but it's basically um, a network of attorneys that are committed to uh, dealing with immigration matters and assisting with immigration matters and assisting our attorneys, you know, that are working on immigration matters. But more importantly, it's a source of training. It's a source of knowledge. Um, and also it's a, it's a way to increase the amount of attorneys that are interested in working on 
these types of matters, and also just teaching others, even if they're not involved with immigration matters, teaching them about what's happening right now in the immigration field. And, you know, there's a lot of ignorance out there right now. There's a lot of misinformation. And, you know, we see it as part of our job to actually spread knowledge and, and inform others within the firm as to, you know, the current status of, uh, you know, immigration law, et cetera. Um, but really, it's a way for the firm to, you know, consolidate their efforts on the immigration field in order to try to increase the amount of these cases that we take on. So the, the model for it at, you know, at the outset was uh, the Women's Leadership Initiative. They have uh, another clinic called the Housing Clinic. And you know, when I started out as a first year, that was kind of a big thing. And so what I realized after taking on my first uh, pro bono case is that there were a lot of individuals here in the firm that had worked on immigration cases um, and they had experience, but there was no real way to know who these individuals were. And so it was just kind of a very makeshift. It's just you, you had to kind of do it on, a, on an ad hoc basis. You had to you know, be able to know that this person worked on that case and then reach out to them individually. Maybe they weren't there before. So essentially what we try to do is just gather that knowledge and create you know, this kind of circle of individuals that would be able to assist with respect to whatever matter came up. So let's say that someone is going to, um, you know, see a particular judge in an immigration court, you know, we, you know, ask around, has anyone dealt with this judge? You know, does anyone have any experience? Is there any particular way that we can deal with him or her? Um, or, you know, has anyone dealt with this issue? Or let's say the client is looking to uh, move, you know, but she applied for uh, asylum in this particular, you know, in this particular district, but she's going to move to another district. You know, things like that where, you know, you kind of try to maximize and tap into the wealth of knowledge that people have accrued and experienced. Um, so, you know, we started discussing it maybe two months after I had started at the firm. And, you know, some of the people, you know, that I was talking with were very receptive to it. And they said, well, you know, you should pitch it to Pat Quinn, who is the chairman of the firm, you know, at our next uh, Black and Latino Association meeting. And so, you know, that was, you know, the meeting was the next day. So I basically <laughs> had to come up with the whole pitch. And, you know, I did. And, you know, the next day I talked with Pat, you know, we were, you know, at the meeting and I, I pitched it to him and, you know, he said, great, you know, how can we help you? And so, you know, from there it just kind of took off. And, you know, every year we have events, every year we have, you know, speakers come in to speak about some, you know, relevant aspects of what's going on. Most recently we had um, Michael Bohanek uh, from Human Rights Watch who spoke about, you know, the family separation crisis and how that's still ongoing. Um, you know, years earlier, we had, you know, experts come in to talk about USV Texas and, you know, the challenges to uh, DACA, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's just been a lot of different, uh, you know, elements to the clinic, uh, including working with some of our clients in order to, you know, get them involved with um, our with our teams. And so, you know, some of their clients, you know, in their legal departments, you know, especially, you know, when they see the news and they see what's happening, they say, how can we help? And so it's, it's a great opportunity for them to be able to participate in these cases, you know, as a joint effort. So um, it's very multifaceted and, um, you know, it's something that, you know, we've been very passionate about. And thankfully, 
it's kind of made immigration part of the DNA of the firm. And, you know, I'm very lucky and I'm very happy that that's been the case. Do you have any events or any activities of the uh, clinic or the group that that are coming up that you want to plug? Um, Yeah, in September, I believe uh, we're having our annual uh, naturalization clinic with one of our clients. Um, So every year, you know, at least twice a year, we have this naturalization clinic where we help um, individuals that are already, you know, residents, you know, obtain um, their citizenship. And and those are always great because, you know, I kind of get to see the cases from the very early stages um, to their culmination. And this is really, you know, the last step. This is the moment where, you know, from very difficult situations, you know, they finally are able to become a citizen in the United States. They're finally going to be able to, you know, swear the oath of allegiance and be able to become voters and be able to have a voice in this country. So I always find it to be very fulfilling to be able to also take part in that because I'll be perfectly honest, right now, the field of, uh, you know, immigration, the representation of legal, you know, from documented immigrants right now, it's, it's very tough because of the changes in the administration and because of the constant shifting changes in policy. And so, you know, a lot of the cases that we're working on, you know, it's kind of a very long and arduous process, you know, to see it through to completion. Something like, you know, a U visa petition or a VAWA petition, you know, they're taking about four years to resolve. So a lot of the times you don't really get to see the fruits of your labor for a long time. So it's always nice to have, you know, the contrast of someone being able to finally become a U.S. citizen. And so they've already gone through that whole process. So that's uh, that's coming up next. Um, and, you know, and we just kind of, you know, develop this, you know, on an ongoing basis. So there are surely to be more things after that. Oh, of course. So we have a regular segment on our show called Tell Us About Your First Time. So could you tell us about your first or an early pro bono matter that you handled? Yeah, so, you know, it was my first assignment here as a first year. Um, you know, I, I met uh, one of the associates and uh, he uh, told me, look, you know, we had this client from El Salvador and, you know, we're having issues. And so it would be great if you could, you know, come on board and, um, you know, help us out with uh, interpreting and translation, et cetera. And so I agreed and, you know, I had not even gotten my first, you know, billable assignment at that point. And, uh, you know, once I, I met with the client, you know, I realized that, you know, she had gone through, I think, you know, two different attorneys by that point because, you know, the nature of big law is that, you know, there's a, a lot of rotation a lot of times. And so, you know, you could clearly tell that the client, you know, at the time she was uh, 19. So she was very apprehensive at that point. Um, and she was very wary of the process. And so, you know, I got to know her better. I got to know her mother. She was applying for special immigrant juvenile status, which is a special form of relief for uh, children that have been victims of, um, you know, abuse, abandonment, and neglect uh, from one or both of their parents. And so I got to know her a lot better. I got to know her a lot more, you know, closer and got to know her mother, got to know her young child. And little by little, she started trusting me. 
And, you know, eventually the attorneys that I was working with left for another firm. And so now it's just kind of me working with them. And um, unfortunately, the facts of her case um, have been very tough. Um, you know, it's the type of case that it feels like you're fighting an uphill battle every single time. And so we're still kind of working through the process because especially since the Xinjiang administration, you know, they've just made it impossible for her. Um, and so, you know, she's sort of become a family member for me. And, uh, you know, it just feels good to be able to be there for her. And, you know, even at the times where she's feeling hopeless, you know, I'm able to give her, you know, some inspiration and, and invigorate her again. Um, so, you know, she's one of, you know, she's probably my most beloved client and, you know, she's very, you know, near and dear to my heart. And so, um, we're still working with her. We're still trying to help her out because, you know, just the facts are just have just not been good. Um, but, you know, it's like I tell her, you know, this is still your very best, you know, way to, you know, resolve your situation and, you know, be able to stay here permanently. So um, that's one that, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter what I do. It's always going to stay with me because it literally was my first, you know, client, you know, on a pro bono basis. So, How do you stay upbeat? I mean, when the facts are horrible, when the climate is challenging, when the, you know, um, the odds seem stacked against you, when it all seems so unfair, how do you keep going? What, what motivates you as opposed to throwing up your hands and saying, oh, I'm I'm out. This is too depressing. And I think that you will hear this from every, I think you will hear this from everyone in the pro bono field. You know, the last three years have been tough. And, um, you know, I know that, for example, nowadays when I get a notice from USCIS, I, I just have to take a minute and just brace myself because I know that I'm not going to be happy with whatever I'm going to get. And so it does take a lot of mental fortitude and it does take an emotional toll on you. And, uh, you know, you, you have to stay upbeat for the client's sake. You know, you have to be honest with them. You have to tell them exactly, you know, what's happening. But... But you do have an obligation to, you know, make sure that you motivate them because the worst thing that can happen is the client just kind of losing hope and then disappearing or losing contact. You know, we've certainly had that happen in the past, and that's always a risk, you know, but you want to make sure that the client stays engaged. Um, But, you know, a lot of the times I've gotten something and, you know, I've just had to take a moment and just, you know, not even deal with it because, you know, it's just so infuriating. Um, a lot of the things that are happening, a lot of the things that are being done, they're just illegal. There's just no other way to, you know, go about it. They're, they're just, it's very hard as an attorney to abide by the laws and use the rules the way that they're meant to be used and seeing that the other side is just ignoring those rules just because they can. And, you know, it's kind of like you're playing a game of chess and, you know, you know that the horse is supposed to, you know, go this way but then you know the other side just you know takes it you know however they want it it kind of feels like you're playing chess with someone that's cheating um so it's it's very hard and it's very infuriating because you know in your heart that everything they're saying is wrong but you can't do anything about it because it's the government um so it, it's really just the process i i can't really tell you that i'm upbeat all the time it's it's it hasn't been very upbeat the last two and a half years um, certainly, there have been some successes, and those have been very good. For example, with the client that I was just talking about, we recently got a, you know, got a, a win in the Southern District, 
um, and you know she was part of the class that got you know the win, and so you know it felt like we were validated, like you know you finally got to see some justice. But now the problem is, you know, how will the administration implement it, and how will they follow those orders? Will they follow those orders? So you know you you learn not to be too optimistic at any point in time because you know that you're fighting against a foe that doesn't play by the rules. So um, and I know that I'm getting very you know, close to being political here. Um, and I think it's just, I'm trying to just speak from the facts and, and that has been my experience. It just hasn't, you know, been, you know, very just, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's challenging when we're not only dealing with representing individual clients, but also the rule of law. So it's a lot of challenges for sure. Um, we talked a little bit about when you were a summer associate and getting to Cudwallader and it's summer associate season now. Uh, what advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? I mean, I try to tell, you know, all the summer associates, not just the summer associates, but also first year, second year associates. It's, you know, if you have something that means to you and if you have something that you're really passionate about, you know, just kind of go for it, kind of, you know, develop it and try to see it through. Because honestly, you're going to be surprised at the amount of support that you may be able to get. And, you know, as part of a law firm, you have access to a lot of resources and, you know, use those resources, utilize them in order to, you know, make sure that you're achieving the types of things that you want to achieve. And, you know, make sure that you always have some sort of balance. Um, You know, make sure that the firm that you're in, you know, puts a high priority on the type of things that matter to you. If that's diversity, if that's pro bono, um, you know, make sure that the firm is really committed to that. Um, you know, make sure that it's a good fit. But honestly, it's it's a matter of, you know, being able to fight for the things you care about. I feel like a lot of summer associates and first years, they feel like, well, I'm just here, you know, as a candidate and this is just one long job interview, so I don't want to mess it up, you know, by putting something out there that is just my personal pet project. You know, I say, don't worry about that. You know, in fact, I think that a lot of people will be very impressed by, you know, the initiative it takes to see this project through to completion. So um, now more than ever, law firms are being very receptive and open to new ideas, new projects, and particularly, you know, civic justice, um, which is something that I'm very happy that's the case because, you know, law firms tend, you know, in the past have tended to be apolitical and, you know, they kind of tend not to dip their toes in those waters. But I think it's almost a responsibility for firms to do so. And uh, I'm very happy that firms are more receptive to pro bono nowadays. And they know that in order to keep good candidates, you know, they do need to have a commitment to pro bono. And I think that, you know, summer associates and first years should have that in mind, that that's the type of firm that they should go for, the one that puts a premium and a high priority for the types of, um, you know, projects that you care about. So if you have something in mind, chase it, you know, see it through to completion and try to find people that are, you know, similar mentality, you know, and that can help you, you know, kind of see it through to completion. Well, that's great advice for summer associates, young lawyers, and all of us, really. Let's, let's wind down with this. Who's your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one and why? So, I mean, this was a little bit hard, but, um, you know, certainly over the last year, um, there is a partner here. Her name is Alan Holloman. So 
she's probably going to be, you know, blushing, you know, now that I'm mentioning her. Um, but, you know, she's, uh, you know, a, a superstar. She's my role model because I'm always very amazed at the partners that have a huge caseload. They have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of stress, and still they find time, you know, to work on pro bono and be, you know, civic-minded and make sure that, you know, younger attorneys are getting the type of assistance that they need. And Ellen, in that way, she's just, uh, you know, a, a model act. She really does everything and goes above and beyond, you know, for pro bono. Um, you know, she messages me every once in a while, you know, look what happened or look what happened. And, you know, I'm so mad. Um, and so she says, what can we do? What should we do? And she literally tells younger attorneys, look, if you want to take on a pro bono case and you need a partner, just put me on there, you know, I'll, I'll happy, I'll happily take it on, you know, without any type of concern for, you know, her billable caseload, you know, and so that to me, particularly as a woman in a big law firm, you know, as a partner, you know, it really speaks a lot that she's willing to do that. And she's now the, the head of the Carvalho Black and Latino Association. And so, you know, ever since she's been involved, you know, we've just been able to do some fantastic things. And, uh, you know, the last event that we had for the immigration clinic with Michael Bohanek, um, she was the one that made that happen. So, you know, she's just an all-around impressive person. And, you know, that's the type of, you know, attorney that I want to, you know, be, you know, at the partner level um, if I get there. Um, so, yeah, she's uh, she's pretty fantastic. And hopefully at some point, you know, you guys are able to meet her. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing her with us. And I think that's such a great lesson to end on. Don't just get mad, get involved, because lawyers can really make a difference. So yeah, the way I, the way I put it is, we're kind of superheroes. Uh, you know, we have a superpower. And you know, if if you're bothered about the things that are happening, you know, you're the one that, you know, is in the best position to do something. Um, so never lose sight of the immense power that you hold. Um, so, you know, a lot of injustices are occurring every day and, you know, it's really up to us, you know, even, you know, when times are grim, you know, to just do that little bit, you know, that pushes back. And when you talk about being optimistic, that's really what drives me forward. It's just knowing that, in some way, you know, I'm, you know, helping, you know, turn the tide a little bit. Um, and I think that's what others should keep in mind. What an inspiring note to end on. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Rena. Thank you so much to Osvaldo for making the time to be with us and for all the inspiring work he does. And thanks to producer John and Leah Calabro for her amazing research assistance. You can learn more about the Pro Bono Institute on the web. Find us at probonoinst.org. Hey, listeners, we've gotten some great mail from you, and we'd love even more. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to lawfirm at probonoinst.org. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.